From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So, I mean, Joanna, what's Evan been drinking? <laughs> That's so funny. No, we, we haven't. We, I say we here, haven't had much in the past week. Um, nothing too much to speak of. I did have uh, Gia Lime and Salt that I liked that I got through the office. Wait, it's like it, the thing is lime and salt is what it's called? And it's their Le Spritz, but the flavor is lime and salt. And I think it's meant to be kind of like inspired by a margarita. It was pretty tasty. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. There's a lot of like really terrible non-elk products out there. A lot. So it's kind of nice when you have one. That isn't Having not tried any of the Gia stuff, can you give it some sort of context for me? Like, what are we talking? Is it like, it's not just a soda, like a seltzer, right? No, no, it's no. So they have, else going on there? Yeah, they so do a bunch of stuff. They have a bunch of stuff now, yeah. They have their, like, main spirit or whatever, I guess it's called. And it's it's quite bitter. Um, and then they took that and made a line of, like, spritzes, canned, mm-hmm. like canned spritzes. So they have the original one, and then they have a ginger one, which has, like... Good, good ginger, fresh ginger flavor, and then yeah. this lime and salt one, which has a little bit more sweetness that I like um, compared to the original flavor. That's good. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it, it hasn't been for me, but mm-hmm. uh, but it is like it's probably one of the more well known ones, and it's kind of all over the place. Yes, like you see it everywhere. Um, so you know, but Na- Naomi's liked it every once in a while when she's had it. So, yeah. um. Yeah, I think it's it's the one it's the one to like try in terms of, out of the big brands. I think it's probably it's not even a big brand, right? It's just it's. I honestly don't know at this point. I don't really remember when they launched, but I feel like it's been around for a while compared to yeah. some of these other brands. Yeah, true, and I think they've just done social media really well. Yes, like very well. It's very social you, media friendly. Sorry, totally. go ahead. <laughs> Anyway, some yeah, more and more true. interesting drinks, like, please. Moving away from Gia. Yeah, come on, I'm so Zach. sorry. <laughs> well, well, first to to speak on a a follow up, I guess, of yeah. sorts to a something that Joanna was talking about. The fine folks at Fever Tree uh, sent me some product samples, including the pink grapefruit that Joanna yes. raved about, and I can agree, it's delicious. Us too. Also, my son is very uh, obsessed with the Sicilian lemonade. Uh, he drank all of it that they sent to us, which to be fair, wasn't very much. And now he's like, when can we get more? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, which, I have to try that then. Yeah. They're at um, the office. You say that, they're but very do you good. really want to be buying, would you want to be, will you want to be buying your child? Like, th- like a $4, six ounce bottle of lemonade? I don't. Hey man, Sorry. he's bougie. He's bougie. <laughs> yeah. We all know well, Saul has funny. the most expensive taste of all of yeah, us. Yeah. I thought you palate trained That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I am reaping what I have sown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, what are you trying to say now? It's what it is. Yeah. He doesn't want no country time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no minute made. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Um, anyhow, so then I was just recently, uh, as mentioned on the last podcast, down in Portland just for a brief uh, evening. I had a, was teaching a wine class down there. It was cool. I got to do some fun uh, kind of side-by-sides of some current vintages of some wines and some uh, older bottles. It was a chance to kind of talk about how wines change as they age and um, explore that with the, with the attendees, which was fun. Um, and those wines are great. Um, but actually, I think to me, the interesting things that happened to me uh, on the trip, I got to go pop into Multnomah Whiskey Library, which I had not been to in a number of years. I had gone um, not that long after it opened and then 
wasn't even fully aware that it had changed hands. It was under kind of new management. And um, while it still very much has the same kind of uh, vibe, which if you think of a place that calls itself a whiskey library, you're probably picturing about the right deal if you haven't been there. Um, like really tall shelves with, um, you know, lots of bottles and one of those library-esque or stacks-esque ladders that rolls around, etc. But I was impressed and intrigued by the relative, it was less sort of like dour, dour is wrong, but it was less kind of dark and like you you must be deeply con, you know contemplative of your drink at all times, which was kind of the vibe the last time I was there. And it was a little lighter, like not bright or anything, but like a little lighter, felt a little more lively. There was like, it, not everyone was speaking in hushed tones, which was kind of nice. And yeah, it was cool. I had a, a fun cocktail, uh, which, <laughs> you know, me being a dad, I could not resist the what I thought was the best pun on the cocktail list, which was uh, the fennel countdown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was a fennel infused, uh, I think, uh, rye was sort of base. It was kind of a whiskey sour um, with with the sort of fennel note in particular. That it was quite tasty. Good. Yeah, it was good. Uh, some little fennel pollen sprinkled on top. Uh, a nice, uh, it was, so it was you know made with an egg white as a proper whiskey sour is, and then um, with the fennel pollen sort of sprinkled on top, which was cool. It was a it was a tasty drink. Had a nice time, and uh, yeah, I was just gonna say though, I, I, we can we don't have to have a long conversation about this, but I was really struck. Um, it's been striking to me when I've been in downtown Seattle recently, uh-huh. but it was striking to me getting off the train in Portland and uh, walking from the train station to my hotel, which was about a ten minute walk. And it's just like there was so little going on in at like one thirty on a whatever Wednesday afternoon. You know, there's very few people out and about. Uh, it was quiet. A lot of you know, a lot of the storefronts were were shuttered. Like things had closed and not reopened. And I was thinking about how we've talked about some of this this some on the pod, but I think we only sort of grasp in some ways. And I and I sort of suspect that for you guys being in New York has blinded some of this, mm-hmm. like. So much of the the effects of COVID and how it shifted where people live, where people work, and how they spend their time. A lot of these mid-sized cities have not; their downtowns have not rebounded. Yeah, um, and especially in a place like Portland, in a place like Seattle, where in certain ways the cities, and I think for for good reason and and with in well intentioned, were working to make it more difficult to drive and park in their sort of downtown cores. Um, but you know, it's made it even less appealing for people who don't live right downtown to come into downtown, whether it's to dine or to go to shows or to shop or whatever. And, um, it was just really striking and sort of sad. I mean, you know, it, it is just what happens. These, these, you know, downtown areas tend to have, especially in mid-sized cities, kind of like boom and bust periods, Mm -hmm. um, as people, you know, as things get more expensive and people are driven away by various things and then, you know, suddenly it becomes, um, you know, kind of an underpriced part of the city and people might you know, move back both their business or they might live there. It is a thing that happens, but it was it's a little depressing. I can't can't lie. It was it was a little hard to see so many um, just kind of things closed up and, you know, places I had been in the past mm-hmm. or just, you know, just seeing like, you know, you're kind of here. I am in the main hub of downtown Portland and like every you know, every few, uh, you know, certainly every few storefronts, you're like, here's a place that's not open. Yeah. You know, just yeah. not because it's not because it's not like open at that moment. Like there's just no active business in this storefront. I mean, this is again, this is a totally different conversation, but I do think one of the things that I've noticed about it is that it's been real. It's really shown to me. Um, I guess I'll use this as a segue to talk about what I drank this week. Cause I saw this in Miami too, actually. Um, it's really shown to me, like 
how bad our commuter infrastructure is. And yeah. so basically like what I was learning from people that I, so I was in Miami for the majority of last week for meetings, mm-hmm. um, with some of our partners who have their office down there. And a lot of the employees had like decided, oh, this is the time to like move 50 minutes up the coast and get a really nice house with a pool and whatever. That's a lot cheaper than like the surrounding area of Miami. So moving to, I don't know, places like Delray Beach and stuff like that, right? And then, or I I mean, I met one woman who like literally moved to Orlando. And then they're sort of like, not the Orlando person, but like Delray Beach is like, you know, but the traffic really sucks. So, and it's totally uh, unpredictable, Mm. right? So there are certain days where like the commute that's, you know, 50 miles could take an hour. And there are certain days where that commute could take two and a half hours. Whereas like at least... In like New York, for example, right? If you move out to the suburbs, you know, you can rely on the Long Island Railroad or New Jersey Trans or whatever to bring you back in the city at, at a very reliable pace and time, et cetera. And so I think a lot of people have like used how unreliable their commutes have become now to be like, well, I'm not going to come into the office, you know? And that's been like a real bargaining point for a lot of employers, it sounds like to me of like, yeah, I guess like, we can't now ask you to like sell your house and come back into the city. And, you know, we also, it is going to be super frustrating if you miss a meeting at 10 AM because there was a lot of traffic on the freeway. So it is probably better if you just join on zoom on time. Like I definitely am hearing that. And I, and I, I think there will be some kind of spring back. Um, in like we were, we were sort of saying that we think it's going to be like in five or six years. Like, I think, you know, I think the generation that's going to get, completely fucked is this is this gen z generation because a lot of them are not working in offices and i think it's going to really mess mess with their careers and there's going to be issues about this and think pieces about it for the next 10 years about what happened to this to this group of people that kind of like ended college in covid and then moved into the workforce and like didn't build professional networks because they were working from home and like People just don't have the same kind of time to me- to mentor and things like that in on Zoom. You know that the, the mentorship time, like a lot of us got in our careers, was like the coffee that your boss had a quick moment to grab with you, or like the lunch you tagged along on, you know, or just walking to the subway together or something. Right? Those informal meetings are really powerful, and uh, there's they're not happening anymore because no one's going in. So I, I think that's going to be really interesting to see. But Miami, yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know if I like Miami. I really don't. I the weather was great, but like, it's just like it's like you know. I know we said on the podcast uh, last week that like major food, you know, the major food groupification of like restaurants is coming. Like this is like to the thousandth level. Oh, it's right. There. This is like yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to a restaurant where like there were dancers during the the restaurant, like mm-hmm. in the restaurant. This was like, I mean, and yet they're also selling like bottles of Screaming Eagle and DRS. I mean, it was just a really weird place. Um, but I did ha- go to one really amazing restaurant um, that was recommended to me called Macchialina. Mm-hmm. That was really tasty Italian uh, in like a little ha- like house or something, right? So it d- didn't have like the the uns 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 vibe of I think a lot of Miami restaurants. The and they had a amazing amazing wine list i had uh, a champagne chavost which i love which was a lot cheaper than it is here which was nice so i can see the appeal Uh, and then the thing that's really interesting that's happening in miami is a lot of places are doing tiny teenies 
So like they have these these like I saw it at four different places, this little section. It's like tiny teenies and they're eight to ten dollars. Hmm. And l- let me tell y'all, they're serving them in Nick and Nora glasses that New York restaurant bars are serving them in that are the same size. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. So we just don't call it a tiny teeny in New York. We we charge 18 bucks for it. And in Miami, there because it's in a Nick and Nora, like this is our tiny teeny, and it's eight. So that was like really interesting. But you know, I did have a, one very weird experience in Miami, and that was uh, we went to a bar. It's pretty famous. Um, and we ordered drinks, and we asked for a specific spirit to be used in those drinks. And the bartender was just like really rude about it and like was questioning us as to like why oh. we would want this spirit and like were we sure and like why did we want this specific drink and it was just very, very strange and like kind of off-putting and I get that it's a bar that I think has this reputation of being like the coolest place ever. So I think that's kind of maybe the the, the attitude that people have who work there. But yeah, it just wasn't fun. And I like, I, I think that's again, that's, it just reminded me of treatment you can get sometimes when you order wine too, or things like really turn people off, you know? And it's like, great. So this is, I'm so excited to go to this bar that's won all these awards and blah, blah, blah. And here I am asking for a cocktail that I like with a specific spirit and I'm being questioned. And so weird. I'm made to feel like my decision's bad. Like also when I see the spirit on your back bar. Yeah. And I'm assuming it wasn't like you were calling like a, you know, the cheapest possible no. uh, version of that spirit. Like, no, I could see if someone was like, I want a, a really nice martini and I'd like you to make it with, you know, uh, like the cheapest gin possible. Yeah. Like that, that I might, that I might expect a bartender to raise an eyebrow at, but yeah, it was weird. Anyways. Um, wait, I have a, I have a Miami question. Really yeah. Quick. So I'm curious about this. I've spent very little time in Miami, but I am wondering, is Miami the city in the continental U.S. that feels like the least like the United States? I mean, I think you could make the argument maybe for New York, too, in terms of just the the European-esque attitudes oh, of New York. Get out of here. But No, Get yes, it, it does not feel like you're in, in the U.S. I mean, in but a lot of ways. where does it feel like you are? What, it, makes, it feels like you're in South America. Okay. Yeah, you're like you're, sure, or just sure. like okay. some – it's like a very weird like because i think if you're in like at least in my experience like southern california has a vibe that is distinct to southern california but it feels connected to the vibe of america (laughs) and miami just feels like they it it feels like it is it is a caribbean island except not yeah you (laughs) are you are in it's accidentally stuck to the to the to the main continent somehow yep i mean and 100 percent, the dominant cuisines are all you know latin spanish inspired all over the city that some of the most of the top restaurants have sort of that bend right or like fusion yeah that's the culture these lots of cuban coffees like everywhere Mm -hmm. um so yes i do think that the thing about miami that's that's also crazy is just like the amount of construction and things going up is insane and you you can see that this really was a city that did benefit from covid um, there is a ton of clearly new people who moved there because it was one of the cities that did not shut down um, and bought houses in that area and in the surrounding area, right? In just like all of the different suburbs and stuff, you see that. So there's, they, they've, there've been a ton of restaurants open. I was at this bar um, one night and I was talking to the bartender. We went like after dinner for a nightcap and she was telling me that the the beverage, like the group that she works for, Pre-COVID had one loc- had one restaurant, and now out of COVID, they have seven. Wow. wow. 
And she's like, and that's, we're not unique. Like that's so many, you know, restaurant entrepreneurs in the, in that city specifically, like just had opened tons of, of things because there's just so much more demand than there ever has been before. Interesting. Well, and it feels like a lot of that, that, uh, inflow of, of people was from the Northeast, right? There's yeah. a lot of people who were, you know, New York and otherwise who maybe had long been thinking about getting out. And I think even some, a lot of restaurant people, maybe. Yep, totally. I, I think there there are there are definitely a lot of restaurant people. So, what we want to talk about today um, is sort of this this crazy phenomenon of the fact that the two largest spirits based you know RTD brands in the country are not owned by who you would normally think of as owning those brands. Not that's not to say that the the, the people that own them don't. I think the weirder one, to be honest, is is ABI because sure. it's truly a beer brand. I think Gallo owning High Noon, they do have a spirits portfolio, so they at least are are there. But still, you know, everyone knows of them primarily as like the largest wine company in the country. Right, it's unexpected. Um, it's unexpected, right? And like, yeah. and why that kind of is, and you know, who might challenge in the future, or or will there be challenges from? the actual spirits produce, you know, big spirits companies or are these two brand, you know, these two companies just too far ahead at this point? Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? We have a really good article about this um, from Jake Emmon that published a few weeks ago as well for people to uh, dig into. But I think these are two very, very specific cases. Um, and I think that in both instances, um, they got in at a very good time. Right. Like High Noon launched in 2019. Um, like Gallo launched it. I think that was just like excellent business acumen on their part. Also to launch uh, with a vodka based hard seltzer in the first place versus malt based, um, which we saw obviously from White Claw. Um, and then I think another smart thing that they did was their 2020 partnership with Barstool. Um, which I think I, I'm so sorry to say it, but <laughs> I think it. This, this this I loathe this part of the story being a success story, but yes, it is. Ahead. It really set it on the growth path that it currently enjoys, and there's such. We know that there's such tremendous brand loyalty for barstool sports. Um, that to have a product like this, I think it was just such a such a smart partnership on their part. Yeah, it, it it was actually a very brilliant partnership. I but yes, I love that part of the story too. I know, but see, I a little bit disagree with your with your take, Joanna, in the uh -huh. sense of I don't think it's necessarily that that it is an isolated situation that like it's just kind of fluky that these two brands, High Noon and then Cutwater, are like owned by these a wine and a beer company, respectively, or at least principally a wine and a beer company. I actually think that the the origins of this have to do with the fact that your more classically spirits-focused big companies were hesitant to get into the seltzer game with spirits-based seltzers for two reasons. One, because it was unclear what the market would be for that, yeah. right? Part of part of Hard Seltzer's initial success was because it was, you know, considered beer and therefore easier to put on store shelves. It was easier to, it was, you know, the excise taxes were lower. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't as constrained as a, as a spirits-based product is. And because those those big spirits companies, what if I think were hesitant to associate their well known spirits brands with the category four years ago? Now they're not. 
obviously they're all now jumping in trying to get into this market, right. whether it's seltzers or other RTDs. But back when seltzer was seen as like a, is this just a fluke? Is this just a fad? It just have a limited audience. Like, is it only going to succeed if it's, you know, White Claw or Truly and it has a black cherry flavored or whatever? Mm -hmm. You can understand these existing spirits companies not being interested in putting their, you know, highly valuable uh, vodka brands in particular on the can or on the packaging, you know, or in the product, of course, in a way that maybe kept them out of the market too long. But it's, I don't think it's, I think it's actually the fact that in neither case is there a like clear, well-known brand of the spirit that is associated. I mean, we have guesses about what Gallo is using, but even New Amsterdam isn't exactly a premium vodka. So it's really easier for, it was easier for them to get into the space with a vodka-based seltzer because they didn't have a vodka brand to put at risk. Yeah, I agree with you, Zach. I don't disagree. I also think though, like to say, to build on what you're saying, one of the reasons I think that is, is because if you look at the majority of like the other company, the, the, the traditional spirits companies, right? They are much more likely to, to innovate through brand extension than new brand unless they purchase the brand. So like they'll purchase a brand that's growing and they'll throw it into their, you know, their formula and they'll grow, they'll grow it even further, but like they're not willing to launch a brand new brand and put a lot of money behind that brand that doesn't say what the liquid is because they're so proud of these liquids, right? So it's like, but ABI and Gallo both have a lot of experience launching new brands, both of them, and they do it a lot. And so I think that that was also like why they've been so successful because Gallo d- doesn't like, yes, it could be New Amsterdam vodka, it could be something else, but they don't care. It's high mm-hmm. noon. And like, that's, that, that's something they're very good at. And same with ABI. ABI launches so many new products, you know, and some of them are brand extensions and some of them aren't. And so like, they were totally fine to create Cutwater and things like that, right? Like they just, they knew what they were doing in a different way and had sort of the, the you know the ability to understand how much that would cost and what that looks like and i think like a lot of the bigger companies when they create these new brands like they start they treat them like like craft startups and so like they don't put as much behind them cuz like oh let's see if it lives or dies basically right whereas mm-hmm. these two companies you know my impression is like they understand what it takes in the beginning so they both you know really promoted them and then they and they ink these big deals with you yeah. know with partners and things like that that really help the brands grow right out of the gate. Well, even in the instance of Cutwater though, they were distilling from the beginning, right? They were the right. distillery totally. extension of um shoot, Ballast uh Ballast Point, Ballast right? Point, yeah. And then AB like Anheuser-Busch um acquired them a few years later. So this was their first acquisition in the spirit space for obviously yes, the world's yes, yes. largest beer company. So they were already, like to Zach's point, they were already using their spirits in their products and they just happened to be very good. So I think that was very smart on ABI's part as well mm-hmm. to acquire this brand. Um, I think it also helps that both, both, uh, like both of the products are very good. Yes. Like, I think that's a big they part are. of it too. Like they no, taste they good. Mm-hmm. They are. And and these are both, and look, these are both companies that, not to say that that this is, you know, that no one else is good at this, but I think they're both companies that are very good with flavor. Yep. 
And so like the the high noons, for example, like they they taste like the way you think a grapefruit seltzer should taste or the way you think that a watermelon seltzer should taste. And same with the cut waters, like they taste good, as you as you're saying, because they uh, these they understand flavors, um, which I think is, is really unique. I also think the other thing with this is that with some of these other brands, I think the benefit of of these of, of a cut water or a high noon, you can kind of do what you can do whatever flavors you want. Whereas with these other brands, like there's very specific things in, in in terms of like cocktails i think you know that you associate with that liquid so like you know it'd be very hard to like do uh a canned cocktail let's say with crown royal in it that's like watermelon and grapefruit yeah. or things like that like what works is crown and coke cuz that's what yeah. people like to drink is a crown and coke like you you're not surprised by seeing that you know same with like putting I don't know, a specific vodka, like a martini makes sense for some people to see if it's a martini vodka that people, you know, are used to. But to say, oh, great. Now, like all of, you know, the Belvedere that I drink is going into flavored, you know, RTDs that like the brand also doesn't want to take that risk. Yeah. Because yeah. people are like, well, I, isn't Belvedere premium? Like if it's premium, yeah. should it be being flavored with like, green apple like how does that work and so it really turns people off and so i think what we will see in in the near future is some of these spirits brands going into rtd or rts more i think rts actually mm. and trying to keep it to very premium cocktails like you know bottled you know bottled negronis bottled old fashions things like that espresso martinis with their liquid in it like i think like on the rocks Right, which right. is what what they're you know what Beam is doing with on the rocks is really interesting, and then saying what liquid you know is inside as the main ingredient for that cocktail, but that's a very different idea, and that still I think to a lot of people seems super premium than a canned you know drink that's delicious, but you know less than five percent alcohol. It's just a it's a totally different thing. Yeah, I also wonder you know a thing that struck me in reading uh, the piece that Jake wrote is. You know, it's also probably relevant here that as we're talking a lot about seltzer, talking about a canned product, that AB in particular, but even Gallo, I think has a lot more experience with canned products than a lot of the other spirits brands because it wasn't something that spirits brands had or spirits companies had to think about because just no, essentially no meaningful spirits products went into cans until very recently. Yep. And that not just the infrastructure, like enormous canning lines, which are obviously a huge part of getting a large amount of product onto shelves, but even the ways of handling it, of, you know, transporting it around the country of, you know, again, shelf placements, things like that. Yeah. Like all this stuff is really, it it, it seems like it, you, you would think maybe, or, or the, maybe not us, cause we are, we know this stuff, but, but some listeners might think like, oh, well, you know, if, if a well-known spirits company releases a, their own version of a vodka based hard seltzer, that getting shelf space shouldn't be hard, but it actually is hard because these things are done way in advance. They're often in like large grocery chains handled perhaps at the national level. You're not just walking into your local grocery store and being like, Hey, I've got a, you know, the aforementioned Belvedere seltzer, uh, can you throw some on the shelf for me? Like it is a much bigger process and a much harder or at least more complicated set of negotiations and, you know, art discussions about price and availability and exclusivity and all these things. And I just think part of it is the spirits companies, in addition to not believing 
or not knowing that this category would would have a lot of growth potential in it and a, lot, and a bigger audience than maybe they thought also just weren't positioned to have those kind of negotiations because in many cases they were dealing with different people with these big companies, right? The yeah. the person you talk to to get a, a bottle of your vodka on the shelf in a, in a Kroger is different than the person you talk to to get your seltzer on the shelf. It's just how these things work. They have, you know, at a, at a companies of this scale, they have mm-hmm. pe- multiple people who are involved in each of those departments and you don't just kind of like, you know, say like, oh, hey, hey, uh, you know, Jen, I've got a different product this week. Like, can you throw that on the shelf for me? It just, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And so I think, the specifics of the canned beverage alcohol model also kind of gave AB in particular, but even uh, Gallo a leg up because they were just more used to working in that space. Yeah. And I also just think at this point when a lot of these bigger spirits brands are coming to RTDs, um, it's just a much more saturated market. And, and that's where I think Cutwater and High Noon kind of getting in when they did um, is also a huge part of why they're so successful now. I mean, and look, I, I do think the other thing about this that that's interesting, I, I just thought of this as you were talking, Zach, is I also think that both of these companies just understand in a clearer way the occasion for this type of product and mm-hmm. how you market that at this level of alcohol. There's, it's a very different way to market spirits, right? Like pure spirits. And then it's a lot about like explaining to the consumer how to use it and here are recipes that are good with it. And here, you know, and a lot of those moments and occasions are not like chilling by the beach with a cooler full of high noons. And, but that is a lot of like, you know, easy pop and pour wines and that is a lot of beer and so like they just they knew how to very easily just take the same model they use to market a lot of their other products and dump in these products instead and do it very effectively and not and again then not have to worry about also this product cannibalizing an already successful brand which I think is the other fear in a lot of the spirits brands of like, well, what if this somehow hurts the main brand in some way? And so that's why I think there you've seen more hesitancy than we would expect because of that. So really interesting. Let us know uh, your thoughts. And if you're, if you're a fan of either of these two RTDs, hit us up podcast of uh, Joanna and Zach, it's always a pleasure. Um, and I will talk to you guys on Friday. Yes, I hope you guys have a nice week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. 
Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.